This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey, folks, just a quick announcement. We're in the midst of a very important fundraising drive to come up with all of our production costs for 2016. If you like Kick-Ass Politics and you value what I'm doing here, then I hope you'll go to GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics and donate what you can. It's vital that we fund our production budget for the coming year so I can focus my energies on the content side of Kick-Ass Politics and keep producing new episodes for you every week. So be a part of what I'm creating here. Just go to GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics or hit the donate button on our webpage at kickasspolitics.com. Thanks in advance, folks, and now enjoy the show. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. Just in time for the Oscars this weekend, my guest today is Yevgeny Afnivsky, who's nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature for his movie Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. As the director and producer of Winter on Fire, Yevgeny and his crew risked their lives for 93 days in the streets of Kiev, in the freezing cold, getting beaten by police and shot at by snipers, so they could document, start to finish, how the peaceful demonstrations in Kiev's Maidan Square escalated into a full-scale revolution and led to the overthrow of Vladimir Putin's corrupt puppet president, Viktor Yanukovych, in Ukraine. Folks, the human drama and epic size of this movie are on a level that you rarely ever see in a documentary film. And today, Yevgeny will talk to me about this massive undertaking and how he was able to mobilize his crew so quickly. We'll talk about what separates the Maidan demonstrations from the Arab Spring and other revolutions in recent years, and how, in many ways, this one can serve as a blueprint for democracy and reform around the world. We'll also talk about the emotional toll that making this movie took on the filmmakers, and we'll talk about the inspiring story of one brave 12-year-old boy who risked his life for his freedom and for his country. Coming up with Academy Award nominee Yevgeny Afnivsky in just a moment. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. Today I'm joined in studio by Yevgeny Ifnevsky, the director and producer of a remarkable film called Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. Yevgeny, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me here. Well, first I want to congratulate you on your Oscar nomination for Best Documentary Feature for Winter on Fire. It blew my mind away. It's such an extraordinary, epic film. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. People, I really want to recommend that they see this. It is as dramatic as any narrative film that I've seen this year, and the, the epic scale of it. I know that you've heard this before, but if people are moved by Les Mis, this is the real thing, and it is so incredible. Um, when it first started, 
in 2013 when the protests broke out in Maidan Square. How were you able to mobilize? You had, I heard somewhere that you had 28 cameramen. How were you able to mobilize your crew and formulate a plan for this documentary so quickly? You know what? A, actually, I jumped from Los Angeles to Ukraine because I've been here with you in Los Angeles. And uh, at that moment, one of my friends called and he asked me to come down because we did movies before and he was thinking that something remarkable happening there already in the first days because it was remarkable it was different compared to the previous movements that happened in the same square like nine years before here it was completely apolitical here it was self-organized it was kind of uh, the movements of 21st century when uh, the self-organized youth came out and uh, organ kind of brought each other together through the facebook again uh, social media stuff, because uh, Mustafa Nayem posted something on the Facebook asking everybody to come to the square. So it was interesting how we are living in 21st century and kind of create the revolution of 21st century. And it was interesting to observe on the first days how the same youth not allowed any politicians or political movement to jump into the square or become kind of a leading part of the movement. So it was yeah. completely apolitical. Yeah, and you do see in, uh, later on in the film when uh, Vitaly Klitschko, the the prize fighter, who now is I think mayor of Kiev, yes. when he starts to try and co-opt the uh, the protest and wants to become the figurehead of it and negotiate with the government, the protesters revolt against that. Correct. It's not only him. All the opposition leaders, uh, all all of them were there and tried to kind of off to pull the strengths to become leaders of the movement. But since it was the nation who erupted, since it was the youth who came out to the streets, they not allowed this to happen. They didn't want it leaders who coming and going. They are the people, and they wanted to prove to entire nation that the people have the power, not the leaders that are trying to proclaim themselves leader. But going back to your question about the cinematographers and 28 cinematographers, how yeah. it's all started. When I originally came, we started to film things with two cameramen that we hired there. Okay. And it was two camcorders, Canon camcorders that uh, they brought with them. And it was locals. And this is how it started. And then up, after the horrible night when we all got beaten, 20, on the 30th of November, 4 o'clock in the morning, this horrible momentum in the history when everything kind of started to shift into the bad revolutionary situation when the first blood was spilled literally a lot of young blood was spilled and the church giving the shelter to the younger generation to the youth that are running from the square from this momentum we realized that you need to be prepared for a lot of surprises a lot of unforeseen situations because the events starting to unfold so spontaneous so you want to have more eyes on the movement and yeah. then every day the movement started to grow. At the peak of the movement, you had over a million people in the square. That wow. is huge. So you didn't know from where to expect things. You didn't know uh, what will happen next. So you wanted to have more and more eyes. So I started to kind of talk to the people, see who is filming, offer them to join the forces. And people huh. wanted to join the forces because a lot of the people were just filming for themselves without any idea where they're going to be using the footage. And in our days, it's not something that you need to obtain 
film or something. It's just taking the cell phone out of your pocket and film, taking, uh, bringing your DSLR camera instead of stills, shooting the video. So in our days, it's much more easy with all yeah. our digital technology. And remind people, for those who may not remember, what was it specifically that sparked the Maidan revolution? During, uh, during 2013, Viktor Yanukovych, the president that was at that time in Ukraine, he promised to entire nation to sign the association agreement with European Union. Unfortunately, and also in the same time, under the pressure from Russia, he was kind of every day going back and forth with the idea either he's signing, not signing. Then later on, on the 21st of November, Prime Minister Azarov uh, announcing that they freezing all preparation for the signing of this agreement. Despite that, despite that, on the 29th of November, Viktor Yanukovych going to Vilnius for the signing of the agreement. So it still was kind of a hope between this 21st when they announced that they stopping the preparation till the 29th, it was hope. So this okay. was one of the reasons why people came out to kind of voice okay. themselves on a square. So initially, the people were in the square expecting a celebration. You know what? It, it was a celebration. It was a celebration yeah. of youth. It's not was a demonstration or like kind of crazy protest. It was a celebration of youth. Same time, this youth was voicing themselves that they want to be heard by the government because they want to be a part of the European Union. They wanted to be a part of the European future not going back to Russia, because all these people, young people, they born after 1991, or at least grow after 1991, when Russia and uh, uh, Ukraine separated, when the former yeah. Soviet Union, kind of former USSR uh, kind of spread, and Ukraine became independent country. So these kids were growing in their independent country. And for them, kind of to go back, it was the uh, wrong way. And Yanukovych, he had campaigned on the idea that he favored joining the EU. Yes, absolutely. But what's amazing to me is Yanukovych is the same puppet of Vladimir Putin who committed election fraud and got overthrown by the people just 10 years prior in the Orange Revolution. So how did, A, how did people buy his line that he wanted the Ukraine to join the EU? And how did this guy even get put back in office? You know what, uh, he did a couple of, I guess, clever steps because uh, what I've learned that immediately after the situation with the Orange Revolution, he stepped aside, he showed that he admitting the mistake and uh, he showed things in a good face. So it was one of the elements. Another element, when after the Orange Revolution and re-elections, Yulia Tymoshenko and Viktor Yushchenko became the right. president and Yulia became prime minister. They not delivered what they promised through the Orange Revolution. So okay. people were kind of uh, disappointed with all what's happened. And for them, elections in 2010 kind of brought him back with the hope that he will achieve something. And he was promising this. And he was actually actively doing things in 2013. Huh. He was actively going to European Union. They were uh, going through this association agreement. So visually, everybody saw this type of the preparation. 21st of November, 
they're announcing that they're stopping preparations, rather announcing Prime Minister Azarov announcing, you can see it in the movie, and then people coming out, 29th, despite that, he's still going to Vilnius, showing that he probably will be maybe signing this. He literally right. taking pen in his hand, looking at the agreement in Vilnius on 29th, and then putting pen down. That, which is even crueler to tease people like that, to Absolutely. give them that hope. Well, when you began filming, you know, the, the scenes of the peaceful demonstrations that began this movement, it almost seemed like Woodstock or some kind of festival, people singing and dancing and kissing and so happy in the streets. At that point, did you ever think that it would spiral into urban warfare and bodies in the streets? No, not at all. Not at all, because you know what? Plus, I guess the situation after Yanukovych came back from Vilnius on 29th evening, and then this horrible night, actually horrible morning of 30 of November, four o'clock in the morning, when first blood spilled, when uh, we running and not understanding where it goes. I guess this was kind of uh, the first shocking momentum to everybody when we realizing that uh, there is no justice and uh, horrible things can happen. But still, nobody knew what will be next. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I loved about this film is whether I'm looking at the apartheid movement or the Arab Spring or Maidan, I've always been fascinated by the moment where people go from peacefully exercising their rights and protesting, say, government corruption to reaching that point of no return where they say, if need be, this is a cause I'm willing to die for. What was that turning point for the Maidan protesters where it became real? It's a couple of turning points. I guess um, uh, outra people outraged by all situations that young, young kids got beaten for nothing coming out on the streets on the 1st of December. And uh, this was the first momentum when people realized that they can't live at that society that was created by Yanukovych, by his corrupted government. And they came out to the streets and they started to self-organize themselves on Maidan. They realized that they will be protesting until some change will not happen. And I guess the major uh, point of no return will happen after the first dead bodies like Sergei Gayan or Zhiznevsky in January because, you know what, people were tired already. It was um, on December, it was January. They saw that nothing happening. So it was kind of a momentum that one way or another, but people realized that, you know what, the government trying to put them down by these crazy laws on the 17th of January. And the reaction of the people was amazing with the jokes and more cooking pots on their heads. Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing to see that even tired people who still there, who still standing for their beliefs, they still can respond with all these kind of funny reaction to the craziness yeah. of these laws. But again, the note, uh, the point of no return happened after we lost Sergei, after we lost Zhiznevsky, after we lost uh, some other, because it was three of them. And uh, it, it was this momentum that people realized, no, we're going to be staying until the end, until the history will be turned into our favor. Because at the end of the day, they came out to turn the history different way. They came out to change the history. And you know what? It was interesting to observe that 
already after a couple of weeks, it's not was already only Ukrainian or kind of history in the region. It's becoming a world history because a lot of world diplomats try to resolve this peacefully. Right, and we I can remember. see in a movie that like uh, Katrin Ashton and uh, our diplomats, the, the Victoria Nuland, whom I met there. So all of them came there to try to resolve these things. Yeah, and one thing that you mentioned just a moment ago, which was really interesting for me, is throughout the movie you see the use of symbolism and art and beauty and even humor in contrast to just the brute force of the Berkut police. Um, you see priests standing between the Berkut policemen and the protesters praying, grandmothers holding pictures of Catholic icons up to the police's face. Uh, the protests themselves, which really kind of looked like rock concerts with lasers and everything. And, and just, you know, what you referenced a moment ago, the wry sense of humor when the government came out with these insane laws that said that the people were banned from wearing motorcycle helmets and hard hats. And you see the men facing down the Barracoot police wearing cooking pots and pasta strainers on their head. Talk about the you know role what? of art in revolution. I guess one of the elements that struck me from the beginning was their humanity. You know, yeah. usually war, and for me it was a war. It was a blood. It oh, was yeah. a killed people. It was a killing, brutally murders, and uh, people were kidnapped. So I guess usually we're not able to see human face on a war. And here it had a human face and at the same time had humanity. And I guess this humanity and a great spirit struck me because you know what? Despite this cold weather, despite these police batons that we had on our head, despite all these stun grenades that uh, we had, you know what? I still have a lot of bruises on my legs from the splinters. Wow. Uh, we, I got asked, my, my team had a lot of bruises and uh, all this stuff, uh, concussions I had. Some of my team players, some of the cinematographers who got con uh, concussions from the grenades. So all this, despite all that, despite the real bullets and the blood that we saw, even our own blood or blood of our friends, you know what? It was amazing to see this humanity. Humanity in different ways. A, we had a concerts every night in the square. Nietzsche Navartov Maidan, Presenter Maidan. They were a very fascinating team that were holding the concert every night. Art, dancing, you mentioned that. And uh, you can you mentioned priests in between police and protesters, but in a movie, for example, you can see the girl playing piano between the protesters and the right. police. It's fascinating to see these moments of peace where the art and kind of the culture is spread it between both of the sides. It's amazing how they were having their spirit high despite all these events. And you know what? I can go on and on and on about all this human spirit that I observed there that blow my mind. Like uh, it was a moment when um, one of the dark days, actually, one of three dark days, I guess. It was uh, 18, 19th and 20th of February, almost two years ago from today, when the most big amounts of people were killed, snipers and all this stuff. Yeah. So uh, I think on 19th, uh, the former 
military guys, young guys, they dressed as the musketeers of uh, Dumas story, Three Musketeers, and they went on top of the barricade and they did the tea under the bullets, exactly like <laughs> in the story of Dumas. And you know what? Wow. It was amazing to observe this. It was under the bullets. It was not yeah. there. But they did it just to uplift the spirit. Or, for example, we see in a movie Kozak that was stripped naked and humiliated. Right. That was a brutally, yeah. and it was a vicious act of humiliation. But you know what? For the protesters, it's not for the act of humiliation. Because next day, the Kozaks naked jumped on top of barricade and started to scream, you will not take us naked like this. <laughs> so you know what? Wow. It was uh, with the smile on the faces for a lot of protesters. But it's amazing to observe this kind of thing. And uh, you know what? Again, art, dancing, drawings. It's, it was amazing, amazing experience for me. But besides all that, it was amazing unity. Unity yeah. that struck me from the beginning. It was uh, all nationalities with respect to each other. Yeah. It was all ages with respect to each other. It was all social classes with respect to each other. It was priests, different churches, different faiths together with the people. Something that I never observed because usually church kind of is on the side of the government to control right. people. Here we saw church on the side of the people, helping to keep their spirit up. And it was amazing. And it's not just that the priests were behind the people. Priests were on the front lines with the people. That was amazing. That Yeah, that is really something that blew my mind. And yeah, the, one of the scenes in it that really just, I mean, <laughs> it just got me in a, in a very deep emotional place was when the Berkut police were coming down on the protesters in Maidan Square and the protesters were ar linked arm in arm trying to hold them back from pushing through in and they uh, they were starting to get through. Suddenly the bishop, I guess the bishop of this old monastery right there, gives the order to ring these bells that haven't rang since, I think, something like 1240, the year 1240, and the, as a call to action for everyone in Kiev to rush to the square and defend them. Unbelievable. Oh, it's it's a fascinating uh, historical moment, you know, what? Fascinating historical moment, and it's fascinating unity of everybody together. Yeah. That's, like I said, you know what? It proves one important thing, people. If we are together, if we are united and respecting each other, respecting age, respecting nationality, respecting, you know what, in our situations, color of the skin, and respecting the beliefs, uh, you know what, it can help us to win. It can help us to achieve bigger goals. And they achieved their goal because at the end of the day, Maidan ended with their winning situation. Viktor Yanukovych lead the country and the new government, new president was elected. So at the end of the day, unity can achieve bigger goals. Yes, in our situation, the price was high, the price of lives. And you know what? Yeah. For us Americans, for me, I'm American. I'm American citizen. Right. Because you were born in Russia, lived in Israel, and yeah. now you're U.S. You're here in the I'm U.S. For a long time. I'm yeah. living here for 16 years. Oh, okay. So uh, you know what? I guess this movie. You already mentioned Arab Spring. You already mentioned some other places. Uh, of course, we can also mention that it was in Iran when the Shah, Shah was there. Right. So for them, it yeah. was revolution. It was also revolutions in different European countries. So this movie can mirror different events, including the Egypt uh, that uh, the youth came to the Tahrir 
And uh, yeah. unfortunately, not much unity we saw there because yeah. the Muslim Brotherhood betrayed them. But what I was trying to bring the point that the movie can mirror our history, something that our founding fathers were fighting for because right. Ukrainians were fighting for freedom, for democracy, for freedom of speech, and our founding fathers of the United States were fighting for the same thing. So it's mirroring exactly so something that related to us, to Americans. It shows to yeah. the younger generation of what our founding fathers of the United States stood for. Yeah, and that's such a distant thing probably for most Americans, This the, that revolutionary spirit, the idea of getting to the point of having to actually die for something that you believe in. And I think it's very inspiring and important for Americans to be reminded that freedom does come at a cost. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk more about Winter on Fire and where Ukraine goes from here. Back in just a minute. Folks, do you like to read, but you don't have the time? Give audiobooks a try. All those times you spend listening to this podcast, you can also be listening to a great book. You can play it on your drive to work, on a run, in the bathtub, while cooking, or just sitting and enjoying one of those rare stolen moments. And right now, you can download any audiobook you want for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free download of any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to the show. We're back, and I'm talking with Yevgeny Afnivsky, director and producer of the Oscar-nominated documentary Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. Yevgeny, one of the things that was unique about the Maidan protest is so often when you look at other movements from the Arab Spring and the Tahrir Square protests in Egypt, I mean, going all the way back to the French Revolution and the Communist Revolution even, you see protests that began peacefully and with good intentions, but very quickly, under pressure and in the heat of the moment, we see people start to devolve into animals. That didn't happen here. In Tahrir Square, you had men you know, forming groups to attack women. In Ukraine, you had men who were forming, locking arms to protect the women. You have military veterans volunteering to train young people how to defend themselves volunteers organizing to provide food and clothing for demonstrators. In many ways, it's a template for revolution. It's, it's the, an example of the very best of humanity when faced with the worst of humanity. Absolutely, because uh, this is a big plus for the Ukrainians to show the solidarity and togetherness, togetherness of all these groups together until the end, from the beginning till the end that brought in 93 days to the win-win situation. So again, it's a remarkable template, like you said, your words, template or manual for the perfect situation of the revolution. But in the same time, if we go into the revolution that happens in Russia uh, or in the French Revolution, it was a difference of social classes. 
that brought to these revolutions. Right. That in Russia in 1917, it was a big difference between the low classes and the high classes. Same mm -hmm. was in the French Revolution, that the high classes had their old wealth and the poor classes were struggling. So this is the moment of the struggle that brought into two these revolutions. Yeah, you had the yeah. most richest people and the most poorest people all together on Maidan. And the most richest people were supporting Maidan at that moment, bringing food, bringing everybody who had money, little or a lot, they were supporting this because they all wanted to achieve one cause. This dictator needed to be taken out. I saw how rich ladies were parking their cars and on the high heels going to the tent, cutting the sandwiches. <laughs> you know what? Wow. Or some Amazing. people were sending uh, food supply or some whatever they able to give from themselves. And you know what? It was amazing to observe this kind of unity, this kind of collaboration, this kind of togetherness, this kind of solidarity. Every frame, every moment of that film represents the very best of humanity in these protesters. Uh, let's talk about, I guess you could say, the worst of humanity, the villains of this film. Um, obviously, Yanukovych was the main focus of the demonstrators' anger, but on the ground, in the street, the enemy was the Berkut police forces, and I guess they're even more savage, if that's possible, evil twin, the Titushki forces. Who were these thugs? You know what? Titushki is the hired thugs who some of them were released from the prison at that mm -hmm. moment just to do their jo dirty jobs because... Uh, By the so the government set them free, released them yes, from prison. Yes, and, and then the money them. just to do this. Wow. Job. Some of them were elite sportsmen. And huh. uh, you know what? It's people who wanted to do something uh, for the money. And you know what? And for them, it's not for the crime because the government and administration was covering these crimes. So for them, it was perfect situation. Yeah. But from your perspective as a filmmaker, when you looked in the faces of these young men who easily could have been on the other side, who were in the Verkut or the Tatushki forces, did you see any sense in their eyes that they were having any crisis of conscience or any hesitation? You know what? Only at some of the Berkut, at some of the young Berkut people, I saw in their eyes, and you can see their faces, because their faces filled with the fear, their faces filled with uh, kind of hopelessness, because they're they are receiving orders, and they're like every soldier in the world supposed to obey the orders. And you know what? They had also orders not to talk to the cameras. That's why you can't see uh, anything in my movie from their side. Because huh. I, uh, I was blamed already a couple of times that I'm kind of showing one side of the story, like protesters and not like politicians or huh. uh, the police. But you know That's what? It's, it's impossible to cover both sides for one simple reason. Protesters, they came and they stood through these nights Nobody ordered them. Nobody sent yeah. them there. It's their personal uh, desire to be there, their own beliefs for what they stood, despite bullets, despite uh, cold weather and the police batons. Police was ordered. They were receiving orders, and they were under the order not to speak. So it was impossible to take even interviews. That's why I put it faces of these people and I guess faces talking much more. For me, these faces saying a lot. Yeah, you can see fear in their eyes. You can see hopelessness. And you know what? By the end, some of the Berkut people kind of turned on the side of the protesters. Oh, did they really? Yeah, a few, but not a lot. 
Because like you know, when you look at the 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 end of the Soviet Union, you had so many military and 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 policemen who just laid down their weapons and decided not to go against the protesters. And it was amazing to me that the Berkut kept going until the very end and just it got more and more violent. And you didn't see that point where when they're confronted with you know, little old you ladies know, you know, and why, why violence? that they, you know, they said, I can, my, I, my conscience can't, can't do this. You know why more violence? Because they've not been able to break the human spirit. And yeah. this is what was making them violent. Because they been uh, kind of in a situation that they're supposed to do whatever they want and break the human spirit. But they not did it. They've not been able to make it happen. Yeah. Despite the first killings, despite all these... Uh, more and more harsh conditions. They've not been able to break the human spirit. So, of course, it's made them more animals because they realize that he, he, as much as they try, the human spirit stands as still. And it was amazing, amazing to observe this stuff. Now, uh, politicians. I do try to interview politicians, actually, the opposition leaders. But you know what? Trust me. The PR, what I heard for themselves and for their parties, was nothing interesting for me. Because you know yeah. what? For me, the human stories behind the headlines, these human stories of these people whom I met there, with whom I've been through these 93 days, much more fascinating. And when I was actually picking characters, I was trying to find these characters who kind of unique and relatable to anybody around us. And you know what? Going back to the characters, look at this Romka, 12-year-old kid who can be yeah. a fascinating character from the same Lemis. Yeah. In Lemis, you have Barquet and you have Crozet and yeah. Gavroche. And here yeah. you have Gavroche, like in Victor Hugo's book, in the original yeah. material of... That uh, kid was Lemis. remarkable. Absolutely. And it was also kid. remarkable to observe him through these 93 days because you were literally observing these levels of maturity that were growing day by day with him. Yeah, I mean, those 90 days made him a man, I think, perhaps before his years. Well, you captured so many compelling personal stories in the film. When you returned to the U.S. from this experience, was there one face in particular that stayed with you? Was it him or? You know what? It was, uh, I actually did a short movie about him that we still not released. I have the full, like, 14 minutes short movie about Siromka. Oh, wow. I would love to see that. Um, I read somewhere that when you came back to the U.S., you were diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder from this experience. Is that right? Yeah, I have PTSD. Wow. I currently go in under treatment. Yeah. How, how's that going? I, I mean, it's, I imagine that's got to be unbelievably difficult to get past. You but. know what? One thing, when you're a soldier and you go in into the war situation. Another thing, right. when you, you are visionary, that. that have a imagination, that you're interacting with the people, yeah. it's even more hard because you know what? I met people, I lost them, I interacted with their parents. For me, I have a character like Sergei Nigayan, whom I met, who is a fascinating character, who was a yeah. shy and humble and amazing. People loved him. And then to lose him, it was tough because then I interacted also with uh, his parents. So it's, it's a process that, you know what? I hope not many of us will go through. So, yes, I'm sure that PTSD is reversible because one of my friends who is special uh, psychologist and psychiatrist who working for the state uh, state of California, 
he's uh, working with me through the stuff that he usually treating the police officers or firefighters or the veterans. So he's uh, actually working with me, trying to bring me back to my normal life. It's it's better right now. It's not Good. it's uh, not nightmares like I had it at the beginning. Uh, I'm trying to get to my sleeping pattern. It's it's a process. I, I will yeah. be okay. I mean, most filmmakers, you know, their worst worry is that there won't be any cream cheese left at the craft services table. This is the hell of a price to pay. You know, for what? Your and art, I'm not for your art, for your and film. I'm not regretting. I will tell you something. I feel that we as a filmmakers, we need to change lives, and I and I think. Uh, I already brought some changes uh, to a lot of different people because I'm getting a lot of uh, Twitter uh, messages. I'm getting a lot of different <laughs> messages on the Facebook. Wow. And I'm meeting a That's lot of great. different people who are saying that it's changed their lives. And you know what? This is my dream as a filmmaker, to change people's lives. Because you know what? At the end of the day, all what we do is bringing messages, bringing fascinating stories that can change lives, that can change people. For the better, not for the worst, for the better. And I guess this movie already achieved this thing. Thanks to Netflix, it's in 190 countries right now. Oh, wow. That's that is a marvelous, yeah. It's a marvelous achievement That's for great. me as a filmmaker. Having it in 190 countries. And what the entire world is 200, 200 and something, yeah, countries. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, and there is, I mean, I really encourage people to see the movie because it, it, there's no way you would have to have a heart of stone to not be moved in a very deep way by this movie. Um, but remember, we also need to learn something about us as Americans. We have our future in our hands. And you know what? From yeah. another side, looking that younger generation right now involved more and more in the politics, kind of, uh, I'm not talking about specifically who is who, but some people going after the supporting the Bernie Sanders, some people supporting the Republicans. Yeah. So you know what? Some people supporting Hillary Clinton. It's amazing that people kind of taking their stands and yeah. involving themselves because it's their future. They're holding the key yeah. to their own future. So they need to stand for their beliefs and their decisions. And it's amazing. Like this youth on a square, on Maidan Square, took their future in their hands and came out. It's the same thing, and it's beautiful to see that slowly it's a, it's awakening of the nation. The only what we're missing is the unity. Yeah. And you know what? And this movie also lets other people know that the government is just a chosen people, mm -hmm. chosen by the nation. They supp yeah. The government's supposed to gods. serve us. They're supposed to serve us, the people of the nation. We are the people, First Amendment of our constitution. So at the end of the day, we are the people and we are the power. And Ukrainians proved it on a square that they've been the power. Not the police, not the government. They've been the power. Mm -hmm. They changed the history. And they not change only Ukrainian history. Look how world changed after all these events of Maidan because sanctions, Russia showed its own face. European countries did a, a lot of changes. So it's, it's changed yeah. the entire geopolitical face of the world, all these events. But the most fascinating, it showed to all worlds amazing lesson. What to be real patriot. You don't need to be born in this country. You need to be patriot in your heart and soul. Yeah. It showed that the people are the power and people can do real changes and showed what is real patriotism, what is real unity, and uh, what it means to be the human being of 21st century. Yeah, and, you know, Americans should see this movie because 
I mean, when you see people willing to die for freedom, you have no excuse to be apathetic in America and to not go to the polls and cast a ballot in an Absolutely. election. No excuse whatsoever. People are willing to die for that right. Um, here we are two years after Maidan. Vladimir Putin rolled into the Ukraine, stole Crimea. Um, we've seen ongoing war in the eastern part of Ukraine where Putin's tried to help himself to that as well. Um, the U.S. and Europe have essentially done nothing. Uh, I'm not aware that anyone in including Yanukovych or in the Berkut was ever actually charged with war crimes by the International Criminal Court. When you talk to people over there today, mm -hmm. is there some sense of betrayal by the West but, that we failed them by Yanuko not Yanukovych coming to their help? Yanukovych and all his uh, uh, kind of gang, they're sitting in Russia because uh, Putin gave him the shelter. And uh, you know what? No, West trying to do sanctions. Ukraine right. uh, obtaining some help from United States and from Europe. But at the same time, I will tell you the truth. I just been there. The Ukrainians fighting with the corruption right now. They still trying to kind of clean all this uh, situation. And yeah. it's taking time. It's taking time. Now, uh, I know that American government implemented uh, some requirements for the Ukraine in order to give them financial aid. Right. I, I think uh, our vice president, when he was last time in Ukraine, he strictly said that as soon as you will see the reforms and changes, we can help you. But guys, you need to move towards the changes. They, they're working. They're working. They're trying to achieve things. It's taking time. Yeah, because it does seem in so many of these cases that corruption is the real enemy, whether you're talking about starvation in Africa, poverty, anything, it all comes down to government to corruption. corruption. Everything comes to, if you can't change that, then there's no hope. Absolutely. Everything is in the progress. And for them, it's right now another chapter of their fight for freedom. Can you go to Russia? Can you visit there? Or would you even I, I can. I, I can go, but I will not. I guess in a second I will be entering Russia. I will be prosecuted. Really? Yeah. You would be prosecuted on, on what kind of charge? <laughs> oh, listen, if you're familiar with the Oleksintsov, <laughs> if you're familiar with the Oleksintsov, uh, yeah. who being the Ukrainian filmmaker who was kidnapped from Crimea and then for starting filming all the annexia of Crimea, mm -hmm. he was kidnapped to Russia and then prosecuted yeah. under the Russian law as in terrorism. So, yeah. you know what? It's all political acts and... Uh, yeah, listen, I did something about Ukraine that not in the favor of uh, Russian government. So, of course, I can be openly enemy of Russian government. As much as sadly it sounds from me, who not did any political thing, just the documented history of mm. amazing human beings. You know what? Unfortunately, I'm sure that the Russian government don't want to show some kind of... Uh, a manual for revolution to the Russian nation yeah. because this kind yeah, sure. of uh, situation can be very explosive in Russia if Russians at some point will be ready to do what Ukrainians did. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if Vladimir Putin's seen the film. I'm sure they, they have Netflix in Russia. <laughs> they are, and you know what? It's, it's playing there. Oh, it is. Oh, wow. That's great. Good, good. Well, I'm curious. Do you have a next project? Yes, I do. What, can you reveal it? Yeah. Or I, actually, when the nomination came 
I was in Europe because we were. We, I'm shooting things last year. The Syrian refugees. The, sorry, oh, the Syri the Syrian refugees, like the ones in Europe. Uh huh. Oh wow, that's topical. That's timely. Wow. Well, I look forward to that. When do you think uh, that'll go out? I will try to end it by the end of this year. Wow, that's great. I can't wait to see it. Have you written your Oscar speech yet? <laughs> no, okay. I don't have time for that. Well, again, the film is called Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom, and it's available on Netflix. And I'm curious, I guess we'll look this up online, but where can people see this movie in theaters before it's, the Oscars? Actually, it's playing right now in selected theaters in D.C. and in Los okay. Angeles. I think in Los Angeles you can find this in the Lumley, in Lumley Music Hall in Beverly Hills. And in D.C., you just need to check where, but it's playing in selected theaters. Okay, fantastic. Well, I encourage people to see it uh, before the weekend's Oscars, because, uh, you know, if, if something wins, it'll they'll keep it in the theaters for four weeks. But God forbid, if it doesn't, you may miss your chance, and you really want to see this movie on the big screen. Thanks for coming on the show. Congratulations on this unbelievable, extraordinary film, and good luck on Sunday night's Oscars. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Yevgeny Afnisky for coming on the podcast, and congratulations and best of luck to him at the Oscars on Sunday night. If you enjoyed this episode, then I encourage you to see his amazing film, Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. It's available on Netflix, or I believe that it should still be playing in limited release in theaters in L.A., New York, D.C., and perhaps other locations. So check your local listings and go see it on the big screen if you have that opportunity. Don't forget to subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a review. I'd also appreciate it if you went on our site and filled out a brief audience survey. And please recommend Kick-Ass Politics to your friends on social media. And if you really want to help us out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com backslash kickass politics or go to our website and click the donate button follow us on twitter at at ka politics or visit kickass politics on facebook and as always i welcome your comments and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com on the next podcast i'll talk with two-time pulitzer prize winning conservative political cartoonist michael ramirez about what makes good political satire, when is too soon, President Obama, sacred cows, and which politicians have been the greatest gifts to him comedically. Plus, he'll tell how one of his cartoons led to a not-so-friendly visit from the Secret Service. Coming up with political cartoonist Michael Ramirez in the next podcast. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.